1: Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. John chapter 15, verse 4. I have azan and jasmine on my patio, and over the years it has spread over the awning and affords anyone who sits out there an expanse of natural shade. During the early summer it blooms, and the fragrance of its tiny white flowers is heady and rich, intensified by the Texas heat, making sitting outside a cool, sweet-smelling experience, a retreat from the brick walls of inside. Sometimes I have to prune the rambling vine back if I want to be able to get outside or see through my lounge windows, and I accidentally leave a few branches in the thicket, where they hold their own for a couple of days until eventually turning brown against the brilliant green of the leaves and radiant white of the jasmine. They're unable to continue to flourish after being cut off from the main bough. This is what we need to remember about our unique relationship with God. Anything is possible as long as we remain with him. If we follow God's plan for us, we'll be rewarded. Not in an earthly human way, but in a godly way, which sometimes means we don't see the fruit. But... I imagine when we're right with God, it shines on our faces and from our eyes, and others notice. We have a reverend at church, and whenever she's at the altar, be it as president or assistant, her face radiates. I know you've seen that person too, bearing the fruit on her face. And you thought, why is he so happy? What makes her beam like that? Whatever it is, I want something. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Social Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNinney. My guest this week is Mike Donnelly, a regular now, I'd say. He's going to be putting on his dad hat this morning, and you'll want to hear what he has to say about raising boys. I'll be looking at John Taylor Gatto's reasons for homeschooling and talking about the Harry Potter exhibit in the light of my guest last week who said, nothing exists that didn't live once as a thought. I have coffee today to go with the last of my Italian wedding cake from Easter, which I froze for my visiting son. He only ate half of it. So prepare to enjoy an hour of news and views from an island struggling with springtime. Do you think you would know, have a premonition, about something bad happening to one of your loved ones? A few weeks ago when I spoke to Jane Dolby, the fisherman's wife who lost her husband when he was thrown overboard and drowned during a freak storm, She told me that fishing is one of the most dangerous jobs in the UK. Because of the changing fishing laws and higher quotas, many of the independent trawlers go out in more dangerous weather than they would have in the past. For Colin, Jane's husband, the sea was in his blood. He was confident and could handle his boat well. Jane told me she wasn't even worried when the sudden storm came upon land. She hardly noticed it, in fact and continued to buy Christmas presents online. When the evening began to draw in, she became impatient because he wasn't home yet to take the children to a birthday party, as he'd promised. But then she said, You can't set your watch by a fisherman. She presumed he'd missed the tide. No cloud appending disaster hung over her head. When she looks back on that day, she realises that Colin had been dead for hours while she imagined him alive and well and late. When she was told that his boat was missing and the lifeboats were out, only then did her heart sink and the panic set in. She had no premonition at all, even though up until then, she would have said she would somehow know deep down inside that a loved one was in danger. I get a churny stomach as a warning that something may be wrong in my family, and I trust it so implicitly I've been known to call every family member to make sure they were all right. Last year was a year of deaths in our family. My stomach was on continual churn mode, and I found it increasingly harder to express my sorrow and concern to relatives who had lost a mother or a child, or a doctor. So I asked Jane, what do I say when I talk to a bereft person? How do I avoid putting my foot in it? Jane's advice was, don't worry about it, they won't remember what you say, but they will remember the hug. The worst thing we can do is ignore the loss and avoid talking about the loved one as if they had never existed. Jane explained that all she wanted to do was talk. She really didn't listen to what others were saying to her. She wanted to vent about her experiences to anyone who she could buttonhole. Total strangers in shops. She wanted to share the battles with the officials, her struggles, the proofs she had to come up with, the awfulness of not finding her husband's body, the accusations of possible fraud, the poverty... And then the support, the friends, the strangers, the church, her children. There's a lot of pressure from society to get better in a year, when in reality that doesn't happen and feelings of abandonment arise. Jane says she thought she was going mad when things started to get worse after the first year. She didn't know until she talked to her support group that her feelings were normal. Now, three years later, she's able to take what happened to her and her children and say, OK, Lord, let's work this out. What am I supposed to learn from what happened to me so I can be a better witness for you? She plans to raise money for the Fishman's Mission, a charity that helps widows like herself across the country. As she said to me, fishing is a biblical occupation and happens all over the world. There are fishwives everywhere and widows and fatherless children. Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 29, verse 11 For I know what I have planned for you. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. It's good news for now, now that Jane has passed through the grief and anger and shock and madness. I'm excited to see how the Lord is going to use her. Well, who said this? School is a 12-year jail sentence where bad habits are the only curriculum truly learned, and it wasn't a child. I'm sure most of you have heard of John Taylor Gatto, who was a New York State public school teacher who won the Teacher of the Year Award in 1991 and promptly retired. Since then, he's not been idle and spends his time writing and talking about the public school system and what it's really doing to our children. He's a supporter of all things un and homeschool, believing the family is a child's most important and influential support system. Go John Taylor Gatto, a fact that is being mortally threatened by the system. Grace Llewellyn, author of Teenage Liberation Handbook, says Gatto has a new job. Having resigned, he continues to implement his unique guerrilla curriculum at the Albany Free School and also lectures nationwide. In his lectures and his writing, Gatto not only adeptly denounces the public schools, but also makes radical suggestions for improving them. These suggestions are grounded not in hypothetical clouds, but rather on his own innovative methods of teaching, which involve community service projects, independent study, apprenticeships, and solitude. Mr. Gatto has a lot to say to all of us. And as Christians, we should do what the Hebrews did when they left Egypt, They took with them everything that would benefit their long journey, including gifts of clothes, jewellery, money and food from their pagan employers. There's nothing wrong with taking or using anything of value, whether it's sprung from a pagan or Christian source. For as long as we can use it in the reflective light of our foundation of faith, we will be enriched. Jesus told Peter, All things are created by God. It's what man does with them that makes them unclean. Acts 10. Chapter, verse 14. To the holy, all things are holy. John Taylor Gatto may not have a Christian perspective, but he does have a teacher's perspective and a public school teacher's to boot. And because of his experience, he paints a very accurate picture of the American school classroom. He's saying the same thing as Christian homeschool writers and speakers like Mike Donnelly of HSLDA, whom you'll be hearing from later, who clearly says that homeschooling is the best schooling for all parents, regardless of their faith. Funny how God knew this from the start, as shown in this famous piece of homeschool scripture from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 6 to 9. These commandments which I give you this day are to be remembered and taken to heart. Repeat them to your children. Speak of them both indoors and out of doors, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and wear them as a pendant on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. I like to think that the more people who hear the homeschooling message, regardless of who it's from, the more people will be doing God's will, even if they don't acknowledge it, by slowly returning the parent and child back to the family and re-establishing rights that should belong exclusively to parents, not governments, to raise and educate their children how they see fit. Visit John Taylor Gatto's website at johntaylorgatto.com. Read his essays, buy his books, and allow God to speak to you between the lines. But before you run off and do that, I'm going to introduce you further to him through some of his quotes. First, I don't think we'll get rid of schools anytime soon, certainly not in my lifetime, but if we're going to change what's rapidly becoming a disaster of ignorance, you need to realize that the school institution schools very well, though it doesn't educate. That's inherent in the design of the thing. It's not the fault of bad teachers or too little money spent. It's just impossible for education and school ever to be the same thing. I've come to believe that genius is an exceedingly common human quality, probably natural to most of us. Was it possible I'd been hired not to enlarge children's power, but to diminish it? That seemed mad on the face of it, but slowly I began to realize that the bells of the confinement, the crazy sequences, the age segregation, the lack of privacy, the constant surveillance, and all the rest of national curriculum of schooling were designed exactly as if someone had set out to prevent Children from learning how to think and act and to coax them into addiction and dependent behavior. He also quips when you take the free will out of education, that turns it into schooling. And good things happen to the human spirit when it's left alone. He defines education thus whatever an education is, it should make you a unique individual, not a conformist. It should furnish you with an original spirit with which to tackle the big challenges. It should allow you to find values which will be your roadmap through life. It should make you spiritually rich, a person who loves whatever you're doing, wherever you are, whomever you're with. It should teach you what is important, how to live and how to die. And lastly, I've noticed a fascinating phenomenon in my 25 years of teaching, that schools and schooling are increasingly irrelevant to the great enterprises of the planet. No one believes any more that scientists are trained in science classes, or politicians in civics classes, or poets in English classes. The truth is, the schools don't really teach anything except how to obey orders. This is a great mystery to me because thousands of humane, caring people work in schools as teachers and aides and administrators, but the abstract logic of the institution overwhelms their individual contributions. Although teachers do care and do work very hard, the institution is psychopathic. It has no conscience. It rings a bell, and the young man in the middle of writing a poem must close his notebook and move to a different cell where he must memorise that man and monkey derive from a common ancestor. These are taken from John Taylor Gatto's book, Dumbing Us Down. Oops, and it's time to go on a break now. Bring me back a cup of tea when you return after these few messages.
0: How do you handle toddlers, teens and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler. And we'll be right back after these.
1: Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Don't you look at the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
0: Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Togenek. And now, back to your host, Vivian McNenny.
1: My guest this week is a regular on The Sociable Homeschooler, which speaks volumes about how passionate he is about this blossoming educational movement. Mike Donnelly serves as staff attorney and director of international relations for the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. He and his wife homeschool their seven children, and he's a frequent speaker and writer on many homeschool-related topics, some of which he shared with us over the years on my show. Mike and his hardworking colleagues at HSLDA defend both the American and international rights to choose how we educate our children, and their convictions ensure that homeschooling remains a parental choice for all of us. Today, we're going to be chatting about some of the questions any parent may have while raising their children as strong Christians and future leaders. Welcome, Mike.
2: Hey, Vivian. It's great to be with you, as always.
1: Thank you. And um, how are you and the family?
2: Oh, We're doing well. Uh, you know, God has been good to us. We are into uh, soccer season and yeah. wrapping up, uh, trying to begin wrapping up homeschool for the year. And as we have more and more teenagers, things become more and more busy. Yeah,
1: yeah. I can relate uh, to that. Now, do you coach soccer?
2: I do coach. I'm yeah. blessed to coach my two older sons, and uh, we've had a pretty good season. So far, we've uh, only lost one game.
1: Well, that's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. And well, here, the school term, how it works. My daughter just went back after a long break. She had a three-week Easter break. And she's just in her second, I suppose, going into her third week. It's a bank holiday today, by the way. We have bank holidays forever over here. So it's another bank holiday today. So she's off today. but um, And then she's got like a few weeks, then there's half term, then a few more weeks. And she doesn't finish until the ninth of July. So... You know, she's she's on with all her friends in America who are wrapping up and getting ready to get finished with their college, and she's going, "Oh, I've still got another two and a half months." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, so. we're
2: we're also encountering our first AP exam with oh. uh, one of his children. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to be taking the AP US History exam oh. uh, after taking an online uh, AP course from Patrick Henry College, which has been really an outstanding experience for him. He's a little young for an AP online class at 14 but uh, I, I found that it's had a, a really uh, p- positive effect on uh, helping him to really uh, rise up to a, a higher level of expectation uh, mm-hmm. than he's had to previously when just sort of being homeschooled by me and, and my wife yeah. and uh, I, I found it to be a, a great course yeah. and uh, would recommend other people to consider that sort of thing
1: and they can go online and find that?
2: Yeah, Patrick Henry College Preparatory Academy is uh, part of the HSLDA family. And uh, it's really, it's it's um, it's an online course that's constructed by Patrick Henry College professors. Uh, and it's got a biblical worldview baked right into it. And so I've really en- enjoyed watching my son uh, in- interact with the classroom teacher and, uh, you know, grapple with Christian issues. Uh, um, you know, w- what's the Christian view of, of the Civil War? for example, um, or not just the Christian view, but grappling with Christian issues in the context of that. And that's not something that you're going to deal with in a public school or probably any other kind of online course. And so I, I really like how they've integrated that aspect into the, uh, into the curriculum and at the same time, not sacrificing at all in the quality from what I've been told, the graduates of this particular course, uh, they end up scoring uh, higher than average on the AP um, uh, t- test in the fours, as opposed to, you know, the average, I think, is between the three and the four.
1: Right. And, um, well, so the AP testing is preparing him to take the college track. Is that correct?
2: That's right. I mean, we'll see where God leads him, but I want him to be equipped uh, to be able to go down that path mm-hmm. if he wants to. And, you know, I'm trying to encourage him to move a little faster than they typically would in a public school environment. At age 14, I guess he would be, I guess he'd be a freshman in high school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here he is finishing up his first AP class in U.S. history, no less, which is one of the more challenging ones. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person who believes that our public schools have pretty low expectations for kids. And that's one of the reasons uh, that I really appreciate home education and the ability to flexibly include these kinds of Higher level classes for our children who are academically, you know, equipped and have the aptitude. I guess not everybody's going to have the aptitude. I suppose mm-hmm. at age fourteen to do an AP U.S. history course, but uh, but you know, my my greatest desire for my children is to, for them to serve the Lord where, where He calls them, and uh, and for at least for this particular son, uh, I believe that God's calling him in, into a college track,
1: and so we can go from from what you've just been um, describing to us to a question that um, has come up very much in our family now. I've got three children who have graduated from college, and a college degree traditionally, we're told, will um, ensure... Um, a student or um, a graduate of a higher paying job and um, perhaps a better job and and that's ostensibly if they're geared that way and if they're, if, they're, if they're called that way why they're going into college well both of my boys have applied for forbearance because they just cannot get the jobs that will pay them enough to be able to manage their apartments and their food and pay back their loan and then when all else fails, when, when there's no more forbearance going on, the parents are going to have to pick up the tab because generally, in our case anyway, we have co-signed with them, so our name is also on the loan. So what what is your um, sort of view on this, this kind of situation that some of the young people are finding themselves in? They can't pay back their loans.
2: Oh, Vivian, that's such a great question. Uh, you know, I talk about this in some of the... Uh, one of them in particular is called Apprenticeships for the 21st Century mm-hmm. and in that talk I have a section on college and I look at from a financial perspective the cost of going to college because people don't always think about the cost of going to college they think of the, uh, the revenue associated with college which as you pointed out is this idea that somehow you get a college degree and then that's going to qualify you to get a higher paying job mm-hmm. which you're now that's not necessarily true and, uh, and so, not only do you not get the high-paying job, you've got the three hundred thousand or a hundred thousand dollars of debt that can't be paid off mm-hmm. because you don't have that high-paying job. Yeah. And many, many people are encountering this situation today. And so, my own personal view is that I, I don't think it's a good idea uh, for children to go into uh, it. Is a uh, you know, it's it's a an asset that uh, is speculative. In, in a large extent because you have no control over the kind of job that you get mm-hmm. uh, and, and you don't need to get a college degree in order to be an entrepreneur uh, there are many people who have become entrepreneurs who uh, have started their own businesses and don't have college education some of whom haven't don't even have a finished high school education mm-hmm. which doesn't mean everyone should be an entrepreneur but I think that that's certainly something that we should teach our children about and, and to me it comes back to two principles in, in scripture one is that the borrower is a servant to the lender yeah and you know what an object example we have in the situation that you've described where you know your children uh, our children anybody's children who takes on debt to finance their college education you know they may not be becoming an indentured servant but there's not that much different no. many people take on hundreds if not thousands of dollars of debt and if you're going to service that debt you've got to go after the kind of of job that can pay you the money to service that debt and you're not really free to follow whatever course that God has planned for you. Now of course Romans 8 28 says all things happen for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose and God uses all of our circumstances to his greater glory and some of that is to help us learn lessons mm-hmm. and I think that you know, for those of us and I'm one of them who took on a large amount of debt to finance an educational degree It's a lesson that perhaps we need to focus on teaching our children earlier so they don't have to learn it the hard way.
1: Yeah, when I was thinking about that question, I thought, well, you know, you take on the debt. It's your responsibility. And I do teach my children that if they borrow from each other or from us and then at the end of the month they say, I don't have any money left. Do I have to pay Back such and such, and I say that's the first person you need to pay back because, in essence, that money that you're trying to spend is not yours until you've paid your debts, and then the money that's left over is you know you can do with as you choose. And they look at me and they say, Yeah, I know, you know, and it's a difficult lesson, it really is, because they work really hard um, for their money, but then they forget because I suppose sometimes you've borrowed money and it's years away and you've forgotten all about kind of that, although you might be reaping the benefit if you've got an education and, and a fairly good
2: job with it. Well, maybe there's one other point I'd like to make about this, and that is there's an important financial principle here and, um, and a, uh, a rule of thumb. Uh, it's called the rule of 72, which says that money doubles uh, over a certain period of time, and you can figure that out by taking the interest rate you're getting and dividing it into 72, mm-hmm. and that tells you how many years it It takes for your money to double. Uh, and, And what that simply means is when you apply that rule in the context of compounding interest, it shows you the power of the beginning period of time when you're investing and saving. And if you can begin by investing and saving earlier, then you reap the benefits on the back end. And the back end can be millions of dollars, which isn't to say that that we need to seek after money for everything. Of course, we don't. But there is a lot to be said for being financially independent because if we are financially free and independent, it's much easier to follow God's call if we're not having to um, service a high level of debt that we've incurred in order to pay off, whether it's a college loan or a law school loan. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think there's a lot to that, and I would encourage folks to, to think about that in the context of uh, training their children and to think about their future.
1: And there was something else that we have talked about in the past, and that's um, interning just to make sure that what you think you want to do is really in reality what you want to do before you go and go to, you know, invest so much money in college education going down that same path. Or community college is really good for the first couple of years because that's much more affordable
2: Oh, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, now with, with so many courses available online, mm-hmm. uh, CLEP courses and AP courses, it's easy to to begin ex- exposing your children to these, these subjects without them having to necessarily go to the community college, although certainly there's something to be said for going to the community college. And the idea of internships and apprenticeships is, I think, really important if you have a child who thinks they're interested in, going to uh you know maybe a medical profession or something of that nature you know getting it getting some training or exposure to that um you know whether it's medical or whether it's contracting or carpentry work or software programming or whatever there's so many opportunities for children to be exposed to different disciplines it's such a great idea to have them try it out to see if they're really interested in it and if they are you'll know and then you'll be able Able to say well let's invest a little bit more in this and then invest a little bit more in this and these kinds of things have a way of transitioning into jobs which pay and you can learn on the job you can take courses while you're while you're on the job and not go into debt and now you know this is your career field and you're earning and paying for the education you need and it works a lot better
1: mm-hmm. well I'm talking to Mike Donnelly um with the hslda homeschool legal defense association and we've got to go on a short break and we will be back in just a moment so bear with us
0: how do you handle toddlers teens and tirades when homeschooling that's what we're working on now it's vivian McNitty, the sociable homeschooler and we'll be right back after these why do i feel so lousy why aren't my medications working Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on Togenet.com. The author of the book, Help My Body is Killing Me, Solving the Connections of Autoimmune Disease to Thyroid Problems, Fibromyalgia, Depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better, to make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on TuggyNet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNenney. The show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Togenet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenney
1: all right we're back and mike in one of our former conversations you had a lovely little phrase that dads need to teach their sons how to be men and i just i just love that how do you do that there's a lot of changing you know sort of times and what model do you follow in order to be able to teach your sons how to be men
2: that's such a great question, and one that I increasingly um, am striving to answer myself um, because I have five sons uh, and two daughters. But uh, God has blessed me with four sons initially, uh, the oldest of whom is is 15 years old. And, uh, you know, as he gets older, uh, I'm confronted with the reality that at 15, I don't have much time left. Uh, he's really well on his way Uh and I need to make sure that uh, I learn those lessons that I've learned with him um, and, and, uh, you know, to help the younger ones. But uh, I think, one, I think we have to realize that we have to do this. Um, Many men in today's culture were not raised by fathers, and I'm one of them. Um, My parents divorced when I was young, uh, and I did not have a father in my life really at all. Uh, to learn from and so I've I've had to kind of figure this out m- on my own and uh, I'll have to say that my, the success has been uh, some some success and some failure and uh, the key I think is learning from the failure <laughs> yeah. and uh, and then and, and trying to also uh, then implement the successes I think that you know one thing that is critically important for men is that you can't teach your son if you're not there and and uh, there are so many men who think that their primary responsibility is to provide for their family, and that certainly is an important responsibility, very important. But if if your job has you out of the house 12 hours a day, then your job is getting in the way of your career, or vice versa. Your career is getting in the way of your job because God calls us to uh, lead our families as men, and we can't do that if we're not there. And you can't be just a weekend warrior, right? Right. So I try to encourage men to really look at their schedules and to um, apply the teaching and the testing that Jesus did where he said, you know, where your heart is, there is there also is where your treasure is, right? What you treasure is where your heart is. And we can evaluate what we're treasuring by how we're investing in it and where we put our time. If we're spending 12 hours a day at the office, then doesn't that really show that we're treasuring our career, Yes. And, uh, you know, it simply isn't possible to, to miss breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day of the week with our family and be there to talk with our sons, to have the relationship with our sons and daughters and wives, mm-hmm. to um, have the ability to um, be a model, because that's what we need to try to be as a model. And uh, I'm not... I don't want to put myself out there as you know the perfect model i don't think any of us are perfect all we can do is is the best we can do but i think this is an area where i think that men in today's culture really need to look at uh and try to be home i personally try to be home every night and generally am home every night uh for dinner and we have uh dinner uh, as a family every night and uh we have opportunities to talk about things and catch up on the day and And I try to protect that time from 6 to 9 as family time, even though it isn't all family time. But we will have dinner together. We we will clean up in the kitchen together. We will have a family devotion most of the time. And then I have the opportunity to uh, read stories with my children and at least spend some time with each one of them. With seven children, it's hard to spend a lot of time with each one of them, even though that also is important. Mm -hmm. But we do have have that time, and so I am there, and I can – hear what's on their minds, on their hearts, uh, have an opportunity to pray with them. And so many dads just aren't there for that. And if you're not there, then you're missing out and they're missing out. And the most essential component, uh, I think, in really leading people is having a relationship with them. Mm
1: -hmm. And so in some of these families where maybe the father is working um, those long hours and can't be there as much as they need to be, Mum takes over. And then what happens is, you know, Mum becomes the spiritual head, because if she doesn't, then the prayers just aren't said the, you know, those those kinds of lessons just aren't taught. How, what, what happens there? I mean, how, how can that kind of dynamic be changed in a way that will work?
2: Well, certainly, you know, fathers are, fathers are called to, to lead the household. And that's, that's the design that God has put into creation. And again, as you pointed out, if we're not there, we're not there to do it. Um, and I, I think the only way that the dynamic can be changed where dads exercise leadership, one, I think, is, is for them to be convicted of it in their own heart mm. uh, and to try to make a change. Mm. Because you, you can't make people change only God through the Holy Spirit can make people change to convict them in their heart that there needs to be changed but we can at least bring a message to people to consider this and have give them the opportunity to think about it and ask the question gee am i really you know really am i doing what i should be doing in this area and so men can make that change and, and it can take a while i remember when i was in business and i was one of these guys who worked 60, 70 hours a week for a number of years when my children were younger and i realized that uh, you know as my wife was Pointing out to me, and, and our wives can can point things out to us. Of course, wives, I would encourage you to do it in a way that's respectful and loving, um, and uh, you know that's that generally will get you further <laughs> than the other the other approach. Uh, but I realized um, through my wife's comments and my own soul searching that you know I wasn't really being the father that God was calling me to be. And over a two-year period, I made some significant changes where I went from working 70 hours a week to about 40. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to be a partner in a company. And so I was able to do that. But at the same time, you know, as a partner, you want to be there and you need to invest in the company. And so there is this tension. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I think, you know, we need to be convicted of it and we need to help each other to see that, you know, really there is a better way and a more biblical way for us to be leading our families. And uh, the other thing I would say to wives is, uh, you know wives don't often understand the power they have to um, inspire their husbands and uh, I would encourage women listening to this who are wise to respectfully um, seek to encourage their husbands not critically but uh, in a in a way of encouraging and uh, affirming their husbands as the leaders of the home. When when wives do that, uh, it's really what men seek more than anything else. And I think w- wise women uh, seek to affirm their husbands as leaders and, and not to you know complain that they're not exercising their leadership role, but to to ask them to exercise their leadership role in a way that affirms them as the head of the home. Uh, you know, we live in, in a world today that's upside down because of of sin and. Uh, you know, one of those curses is the relationships in our marriages can 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 be challenging because of communication practices. And I know it's difficult on both sides. But uh, you know, that would be my advice to, to the wives is to do to communicate that they're seeking that leadership and to and to be open to it and to ask their husbands to exercise that leadership and to follow it and affirm it when they do, and uh, avoid being critical uh, as much as possible.
1: I liked the word you used, "inspire." I thought, I thought that was a that was a lovely word to use. Um, well,
2: it's true, and most men wouldn't admit it, but you know, women do have an incredible
1: mm-hmm.
2: power to inspire their husbands.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you're talking about a wonderful, um, you know, the, a, a, a wonderful family and opportunities to teach when you're sitting around um, your meal table and just not being a weekend warrior, a weekend father. And um, so your children at the moment, while they're young, will look to mum and dad to um, encourage them and to teach them um, the, the correct moral and ethical behavior. Then as your children start to get older, they're starting to look outside the family. And naturally, I would imagine that, the church would be a place where they would start to look. And hopefully we can find a church that um, supports how we feel as a family. What happens, though, when a church has started to become too liberal, The national, a, a national church, not just maybe your little um, church that's been started in a home and is a breakaway, but you're talking about your, your national, I'm talking about the national church. What happens when those teachings are coming down and they're just no longer matching what's going on in your family.
2: Well, Proverbs says that you should guard your heart, for from it spring the things of life. I think that's Proverbs 4.23. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we as parents have a responsibility to guard our children's hearts, and we've got to be always on the lookout to make sure that what's entering into their hearts and into their spirits is, is in accordance with Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I would say that... Um, you know, the, you know, of course, our families are the most influential place for our children, but churches should be perhaps the next most influential. Of course, if your children are in a public school, that's going to be the most influential. Yes. Uh, and so that's you know one of the reasons that we homeschool. Um, but if they're not, then the church is going to be very influential. And what the pastor is preaching in the Sunday school and if your children are in youth group, uh, you know, which I'm I'm a little bit leery of myself. Um, and that's another story for another day. But um, the church is going to be very influential, and uh, and if the church is not teaching things that are in accordance with your views and in particular scripture, then that's the wrong place to be. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you know, you can't uh, hold up the church as an authority if you don't agree with the teachings of the church.
1: No. And well, what about this this thinking of stay and fight from within? I'm thinking. Well, it might not. It might work if you don't have those children with you, but when you've got children, that's a difficult thing to do, isn't it?
2: It is, and I think you know we we have to be reminded that uh, you know the family was the first institution, not the church yeah. in creation, and uh, we have a we have a primary responsibility to our children and our families first. Uh, certainly, the church is an institution that's worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we need to do that as long as it's not inconsistent or in competition with our responsibility to uh, make sure that our children are learning the things that they need to learn that God's calling us to teach them and to, to protect their hearts and, and spirits, um, you know, with his truth. And so if the church is not teaching the truth, you know, you as an individual person, even if you're, even if you get on the elder board— It's difficult. I've been an elder in a church, and I know that church politics uh, can can be challenging, especially if it's a national church. I mean, just one person has very limited ability to influence the politics or the doctrine of a national church. And so, at the end of the day, I think you've got to be really guided by uh, your family. And if you feel if if you feel the Lord's calling you to try to reform a national church, He's going to give you opportunities to do that in one way, shape, or form. and so I think you've got to follow that, that leading of the Spirit if he's calling you to do that. But um, I, I think that you know, if he's not, then your, your family needs to be your first priority.
1: Yeah, excellent, Mike. I think you addressed that really, really well. And we've come to the end of our time. So I'm going to wrap us up now. I've been chatting to Mike Donnelly from the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, where he serves as staff attorney and director of international relations for member affairs and is adjunct professor of government at Patrick Henry College in Virginia. Mike's work, both in America and around the world, ensures that homeschooling remains a parental choice for all all of us. He and his wife homeschool their seven children, and he's a frequent speaker and writer on this subject. I strongly suggest you go to HSLDA.org and find out how you can support this organization and join them if you haven't already. Today, Mike and I talked about some of the questions that may face any parent while raising Christian children and future leaders. He shared his personal insights about college debt, church liberalism, and teaching his sons how to be men and encouraged us to turn to God in all aspects of our lives. Thank you, Mike, so much for joining me today. It's a
0: privilege to be speaking with you, Vivian. God bless you. Well,
1: thank you. You have a great weekend.
0: Thank you. You too. Bye. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler. And we'll be right back after these. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNenney. the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenney.
1: Well, that was an inspiring little chat that I had with Mike. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm so happy that he um, supports my show and visits us several times a year to encourage us and let us know that what we're doing as homeschoolers is the right thing. And also um, I want to talk a little bit about my conversation with Lisa Girouzzi last week about communication and I found that it fit in really well with the Harry Potter exhibit we took my filmmaker son to see while he was here. Lisa said nothing exists that didn't live once as a thought And my immediate reaction to the sets and costumes, wigs and masks, mechanics and magic on display at the Warner Brothers studio was one of, my goodness, this is all a result of one woman's imagination. I can't even begin to tell you how amazing it was. I was a little worried about having to get there without a car, but as usual, the public transport didn't let us down. A couple of really quick and easy train rides and then a convenient, brightly painted double-decker bus laid on by the studios at a modest price to collect us from the station and whisk us to the studios in the middle of nowhere. We were told at the orientation that everything was the original. They used the word real, so I'm happy to say no one in America will see the same exhibit we saw, unless, of course, it's dismantled and transported across the pond. The advertisements for the exhibit don't do it any kind of justice at all. It's almost as if they're trying to play it down. The opening film clip showed film posters from all over the world with their audiences queuing for the opening nights of all the films. I think there'll be millions of visitors once word gets out. It was stunning. We saw and were allowed to photograph all the sets, starting starting with The Great War, that included details that weren't even caught on camera, Dumbledore's office, the common room, staircases, Harry's bedroom under the stairs at the Dursleys, the potions lab, the Weasleys' magical kitchen, the car, the triple-decker bus, Hagrid's hut, the house at Four Privet Drive, the house where Harry Potter's parents were killed, Diagon Alley. And at the end, well, I won't tell you just in case you're fortunate enough to come to England and visit it in person. Don't want to ruin the surprise. We saw interviews with the directors, there were several. The actors, the -the behind-the-scenes special effects folk, who talked about the challenges and work that went into constructing things, like the massive telescope that was in Dumbledore's study window, but only ever seen from a distance. And they talked about making things work, like the underwater scenes or the flying for the Quidditch match. We saw all the ones that were being made and boxed, each box individually painted with a name on it only to be squashed into the magic wand shop on Diagon Alley. I was amazed at the attention to detail in everything from makeup to costumes to set to mechanics, how despite whether there was a close-up or not, the artist was able to exact his craft to the highest quality. As a theatre buff, it was just wonderful for me to see all of these beautifully detailed sets and costumes and masks and just everything props. The animals were painstakingly trained too. Several white owls played Hedwig. One was trained to sit in a cage only. Apparently it takes a day to teach a raven what it takes an owl three months to learn. The only disappointment was the gift shop, which was a total, unabashedly blatant rip-off. Here a school tie cost £24, for goodness sake. Now these, I told my son, could be bought online. Who'd care if they were cheap copies? None of the ones on sale in the shop were authentic either. Going back to what Lisa Giruzzi said, nothing exists that didn't live once as a thought. Well, all I can say is J.K. Rowling's thoughts are astonishingly displayed in thousands of square feet of studio. And I'm astounded by the exponential proliferation of one woman's thoughts gathered under one roof deep in the heart of the English countryside that had been brought to life by hundreds of people who made a living from her ideas and vivid imagination for 10 years. We were able to see quite clearly how Miss Rawlins was spending her language. Well, going back a bit to April the 4th, about six weeks ago, when we were teetering on the edge of London, possibly becoming a dust bowl, not, Jane Fryer, a clever local, came up with some sneaky but legal ways to keep our gardens green during England's hosepipe ban, slated to last for the remainder of the year, despite weeks and weeks of recent continuous rain. You know how we English love our gardens. With seven water companies in the south and east of England, all imposing conflicting rules on when, how and why to water, is it surprising that confusion is rife? Of course, everyone needs to obey the regulations. There are £1,000 fines if you don't, but with tongue firmly in cheek and to highlight just how baffling the do's and don'ts can be, here are some unlikely loopholes, courtesy of Jane Fryer. 1. Buy a koi carp, or even just a tadpole or two. It's generally permitted to top up a pond by hosepipe so long as there's life in there somewhere be it koi carp, frogs, tadpoles, pond skaters, or newts. Some water providers appear fussier and prefer actual fish only, so check on yours. Uses for a soggy moggy, which is a doggy in American. While watering of lawns by hosepipe is banned, hosing of muddy animals for health and safety purposes or otherwise is often not. So what better place to bath a muddy dog, cat, horse, cow or hamster than right in the middle of your yellowing lawn? Of course, if your pet isn't tightly tethered, you may have to chase it all over the lawn, especially towards those dusty patches in the corner under the wisteria. And you never know, by the time you've finished, your grass might just be surprisingly soggy. Number three, set up a car valeting business. Hose pipes aren't allowed for the washing of non-commercial cars. You can, however, clean other people's cars, including your own, so long as you set up a neighbourhood car cleaning business and charge for your services. Well, unless that is you live in Hemel Hempstead or its environs, where the wily authorities at Veolia Water Central insist any car cleaning business must have been in existence since March the 15th of this year. You have to be a crook to know a crook. Number four, dig a borehole. Yeah, true, this is a teeny bit of a fiddle. You'd probably need a dousing rod or a hydrogeologist to locate your underground water supply, plus a JCB digger and a hard hat. And it'll make a right old mess of your rose bed. But once you've tapped into the underground steamwork stream network, you're laughing, or more accurately, extracting up to 20 tonnes of water a day without need for special license. That water presumably will come in handy for your new car balloting business. Oddly, it's not the volume of water you use that's banned, it's the medium used to convey it. So while five minutes with a hose will earn you a thousand pound fine, five hours hurling buckets of water around your garden's just fine, and it'll do wonders for your lawn. Elf and safety to the rescue. As always in 21st Britain, health and safety concerns take precedence. So generally, if you can show that it would be downright perilous not to use a hosepipe, the exact wording is necessary to remove or minimise any risk to human or animal health safety or prevents controls the spread of causative agents of disease, whatever that means, you're permitted to unfurl your hosepipe and begin. Number six, host your own sports spectacular. Get out the garden roller, string up the badminton net, hammer in the swing ball, crack open the garden bowls, unfurl the bunting, and open your own sports facility. Then, in most areas, you can water your grass to your heart's content, so long as you host a sporting event at national or international level. Anyone for World Swing Ball Championships? Top up with Tupperware. Bad news for domestic swimming pool owners in all affected areas. Topping up by hosepipe is strictly forbidden. The good news is that if you've the time, inclination and sufficient Tupperware pots, you can do it in most areas by hand, provided any container is filled directly from the tap. Number eight, can you clean your yacht? Well, sad news for boat lovers. Cleaning your tub with a hosepipe is banned in most affected areas. The exception is Henley on Thames. Thanks, it turns out, to Thames Water and a handy loophole to maintain Henley Regatta's pristine standards. So if you're desperate to give your dinghy a good hose down or your motorboat a power jet, pop it on a trailer and head over to the south Oxfordshire town of Henley. Paddling pools peril. Paddling pools must not be filled using a hose, except presumably if health and safety officials would consider it inherently dangerous not to use a hose. Or if the paddling pool were being filled by anyone registered disabled in areas that allow an exception for the disabled. If all else fails, try Tupperware again, or you could pop a koi in there. Going up the wall. Hosing of patios, walls, and paths is banned, other than for cleaning graffiti. If health and safety concerns dictate, or if you're cleaning an animal. So unless you want Banksy, To spray paint a little motif on your garden wall so you can pretend to try to wash it off all summer, you may have to bolster that hose. Side note here, Banksy is London's most famous graffiti artist and his real identity is totally unknown for obvious reasons. Open your garden to the public. Gardens that are open to the public in Sutton and East Surrey are exempt from the hosepipe ban, so get pruning and throw it open to the great unwashed. Parched pensioners. Well, over 65s are generally not exempt from the hosepipe ban. This is despite Southeast Water announcing three weeks ago that hundreds of thousands of pensioners in their catchment area would be exempt. This week, the company made an embarrassing U-turn after their younger customers complained. Pensioners in the Sutton and East Surrey catchment area may be exempt if they submit a doctor's letter to their water provider demonstrating a need to use a hosepipe but nobody seems to be sure. Go grey, gracefully, and I'm not talking about hair. Recycled bathwater, known as gray water is fine to use in the garden. So feel free to rig up a convoluted irrigation system involving your dirty bathwater, a siphon, water button hose pipe. Just remember to dilute it first. Shampoo is not brilliant for the runner beans. Avoid irritation with irrigation. Hoses are bad, but irrigation systems are fine, provided they are metered, have a timing device, and drip onto or under the soil. They mustn't spray, sprinkle, jet, or mist. Apparently, according to my sons, we have a similar ban in parts of Texas at the moment. Set fire to your garden shed. This is a good one. And your handy firemen will come and put it out with their hoses. You might get a few splashes on the surrounding rose bushes. Fountains alone are subject to the hosepipe ban, but Anglian water customers can top up their fountains and water features if they're situated in ponds with fish in them. Do keep up. The Victoria and Albert Museum drained their magnificent ornamental fountain to comply with these regulations, and it was sadly bare when we visited there this weekend. And of course, you could ignore all the previous advice, carry on as normal, and just bribe your snooping neighbours not to tell on you. According to a poll on the band's unofficial website, hosepipeban.org.uk, just over a third of hose lovers will ignore it. And finally, start a riot in your garden. You never know. This time, the Home Office might just sanction the use of water cannon. Well, time to stop my frivolous chatter this week. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. So I have a meeting to attend about the Arts and Music Festival and shopping to do. So no more loitering for me. I'll be here same time, same place next week. So without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight, our four children, who are the result of that belief. I miss you three in Texas, the hard-working staff at Togonet Radio, my guest, Mike Donnelly, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Anne in Lindale, Hannah, Tina, Rosemary, Pam, Charlotte, and many others who are part of my growing audience. And don't forget, forget to listen to my stay-at-home parent, Ali LaPreet, who's at the end of today at 5 p.m. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Doop, doop, doop,
0: doo doo do. do, do, do. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian Mcnenny on Toginet. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children ages 24 to 18 who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian Mcnenny. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com.